So uh, please uh, dial it up on your device or turn the pages to Hebrews. Uh, it's kind of two-thirds of the way through the New Testament, probably three-quarters to have a look at. This um, week is an introduction. Um, is, it gone? is it still okay? Any better? Any better? There we are. Uh, this, this week is kind of introduction. That means it's not uh, time, it's not going to be um, pointless or worthless, I hope, uh, is my prayer. Uh, but as a way of um, kind of introducing us to this, this theme uh, from Hebrews, I'm going to read three verses uh, or three se- sections of the letter. Firstly, from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It will be on the screen for us. I'm not going to. Um, have on the screen every verse that I'm going to refer to, but um, you're welcome to follow along with your um, Bible in whatever format. So, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Hebrews 3.1 Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. And Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. This letter, this epistle, which is a fancy word for letter, is strange and fascinating. It has some famous verses. I'm going to give you a moment to kind of uh, engage the cogs and see if there's any either sort of familiar or whether you've memorized them by heart, just to, to see if there's, I mean, I've probably just given one away in the reading that I've done, uh, but is there any verse or kind of scripture that you found from Hebrews to be pithy and powerful and you kind of thought, oh yeah, I'm going to try and remember that or it's become significant. We can volunteer those if you're happy to. Uh, thank you, Arnold. Go on, it's, it's all right. Yeah, fantastic. It's, that's Hebrew, Hebrews 11.1, 1. so uh, a definition of faith. I'll read it for you. 11.1 1, um, is, uh, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Great one. Thank you. Thanks, Arnie, for volunteering. Anyone else? Any others? Thanks, Karen. Yeah, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Hebrews uh, chapter 1 from the opening verses. Amazing. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, so there's... Okay, chapter 13, verse 5. Um, kind of, did you say? 
she thinks, okay, we, we're all right, we can do, we think, yeah, never will I leave you. Uh, it's verse 5. Fantastic. Well done, Sarah. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. A quote. Anyone else? Someone else had? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Yep. So he rewards those who only seek him and... Uh, it's a fantastic, there's another one, but I forgot that. It's anyone, I, one that I always remember and I'm always uh, moved by, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active. Do you remember this one? Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. And 7.25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It's a beautiful book, but it is, as I said, fascinating and strange. Fascinating and strange. Why? Well, what's it about? I'm not going to ask you for full answers, but I'll try and uh, weave some things together. What's Hebrews about? Well, certainly there's a lot of Hebraic or Jewish themes in it. As you, uh, we go through chapter by chapter, I encourage you, if you've got time and space, to read it over the next uh, few weeks. talks about the tabernacle and high priests and offerings and worship. It talks about uh, a curious character introduced in Abraham, Melchizedek. talks about worship. It talks, as I've introduced, about something better has come. Some people uh, kind of would like to say uh, that the, the, this epistle, this letter, is, is a bit like the fifth gospel, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hebrews, it's majestic and articulate. The writer of Hebrews just is brilliant with their Greek, not that we're going to do much Greek uh, in, in our morning services, but uh, those who, scholars who do it kind of say, this is classy. That the whole letter is so well constructed, it's beautiful, the themes are woven together, it is smart. I read at the beginning, chapter 10, verse 1, fascinating and strange. The law is only a shadow of the things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Hebrews 8, 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, obviously, as I mentioned, this has got lots of resonances in in Hebrews to the Old Testament and to the culture and the history of of the people of God in Israel. But the writer of the Hebrews is really clear to say that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, isn't to be abandoned and jettisoned. If you're into church history, one of the, the first heresies in Christian, uh, the Christian tradition was, was a guy called Marcion. And uh, Marcion kind of looked back at the Old Testament and thought the, the way that God is characterizing the incidents and the episodes are so kind of traumatic and difficult. He was like, well, let's just cut out, get rid of the Old Testament and went through the New Testament, not literally with a pair of scissors because they hadn't invented them, but cut out any reference to the Old Testament. There wasn't much left. In the new. It was seen as a heresy, rightly so, because the New Testament is entirely rooted in the old. 
They're both important together, but very clearly, Hebrew says, the old is important, but it's a shadow of what has to come. That the new has come and makes the old obsolete and outdated. It's important it's in there. And indeed, the writer of the Hebrews quotes often from Isaiah, but particularly the Psalms, but says and points to something really, really foundational and key. Anyone like films? Yeah, good. Uh, these uh, series, sagas, will take up a lot of your life. But anyone watch Phil, is, Phil would be uh, nodding in, uh, in, in full support of this. I think he watches it every Christmas. The three episodes, three installments of the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. It's about 12 hours with director's cut. It's a proper investment of time. Um, it's amazing, the, the whole kind of uh, the film. And if you've ever read the book, even better. Great story. But if you haven't got an awareness of The Hobbit, not much makes sense, really, in The Lord of the Rings. Where's that ring come from? Who's that funny creature, Gollum? My precious. I won't do your best impression. Uh, I'll embarrass myself. Um, of who is Bilbo? And like, why is Frodo significant? And this Gandalf fellow and, uh, and all that background. The prequel sets the scene in order for the majestic and the grand to be revealed. If you're not so much into the fantasy, what about the sci-fi? Star Wars? No, I've got some dissenters. Star Wars. I I remember going to see Star Wars when I was uh, very little in the 70s. That dates me. Um, And being introduced to Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and the curious, uh, hairy uh, Chewbacca and uh, the the robots and all that, and the the horribly sinister Darth Vader. Episode 4, that that scrolling text through the opening credits. And it's a great trilogy. But George Lucas kind of wanted to set the scene of where does Darth Vader come from and makes the prequels. Jury's out on whether the prequels are any good. They're kind of all right, just ignore Jar Jar Binks in the whole series. What the writer of the Hebrews does doesn't ignore or write off, but rather says this sets the scene. It's it's the work of God with his people, but sowing seeds, establishing ideas of hinting towards something better and greater that will be the fulfillment, the completion of all that has been set in motion, of the religious practice, of of the hints and the glimpses of who God is and what he's like and, and how his purposes are being worked out in people's lives. A convoluted, twisting, perplexing story with great celebrations of faith and great places of faithfulness, and yet God prevails. Hebrews is strange and fascinating. It speaks to something really, really important. Remember when the first century Christians following Jesus' resurrection, they were scattered and sent out with a great purpose to make Jesus known. 
And the pages and the stories of the New Testament reflect on this, on this constant struggle as they would go to uh, people perhaps who had been spread. It's called the diaspora. Those who weren't living in, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the nation of Israel, in Judea, they were scattered for historic reasons around all of the Mediterranean world. There were synagogues in all the major cities and ports. And Paul often would go first to the synagogue and speak about Jesus, often rejected, and then go and speak to Gentiles. But still in Jerusalem, up until AD 70, the temple was there. The annual cycle of festivals and sacrifice of the high priest were ongoing, of making atonement for sins and of bringing thanksgiving offerings. Yet it wasn't as it was meant to be, as they foresaw in the old, but kind of constrained by opposition and utterly defeated, utterly wiped away when Nero in AD 70 sacked Rome. But this is challenge. Because of all that was recognized that God was at work in these people, do we embrace Judaism? In order to follow Jesus, do we need to become more Jewish? How does the interplay work? Because all that Jesus is has come, but how does that relate to the old? Where does Jesus fit and figure Well, Hebrews is really clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in every way. He says, the old is but a shadow. Think back to the summer or our hopefulness for the summer to come and warm weather and long days and the fog to be gone. Imagine you're sitting or gone for a walk and and it's that beautiful time of day in the morning or particularly evening and you just see the shadows being cast do you kind of go, oh, that's an amazing shadow. Don't I look uh, kind of strong and, uh, and, and amazing in shadow form? Or you kind of, you see the shadow. Have you ever caught a shadow out of the periphery of your eye? What happens? You don't kind of go, oh, a shadow. You immediately know the shadow is cast from somewhere. It draws your attention towards the actual and the real that cast the shadow. Hebrews draws upon that image and says, that which has come before is like a shadow. Its purpose to draw your gaze and your attention to the one who casts it. Jesus. Hold that thought in mind. Hebrews is an enigma, but it's fascinating. We don't know when it was written. It's possibly, probably the last of the New Testament letters. Um, Paul's last one is around about AD 67. Uh, There's a mention of Timothy in chapter 13. Timothy, uh, the the spiritual brother uh, and son of Paul, he's been in prison. Um, There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it kind of potentially gives us a window between 67 and 70 AD, though some people think it might be later. Who wrote it? Traditionally, people up to the Reformation said, well, Paul has written it. But there's no information in the letter. And even as you read it, and you you kind of read something like Romans or or something else of Paul, and you read Hebrews, you kind of think they're very different. Very different style and ideas. Still gospel, obviously, but it's kind of like, is this Paul? There's none of the kind of classic things that Paul has in uh, that draw all his letters together. We don't know. 
People have speculated Apollos, maybe Barnabas, maybe Luke, maybe a guy called Clement of Rome who was a, a follower of the, the first apostles. Some have speculated Priscilla, as in Priscilla and Aquila from Corinth, and others Silvanus. We don't know. We don't know at all. It's possible, maybe an, a clue that it is a male writer, though it's, it's not definite. There's one reference in chapter 11:32 when the writer refers in, in the first person, verse 32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And the way that that verb to tell is constructed in Greek would have a masculine construct because it's connected to the I. I tell. We don't have that in English, but in other languages, the, the verb takes on uh, the, the grammar of the pronoun. And that verb has a male, uh, a masculine derivative. So it may just be a hint towards it's a, it's a male authorship, but it's not conclusive. We don't know who wrote it, and it's probably not Paul. And ultimately, we're left, don't know, it's an enigma. Origen, Origen, a third century theologian, wrote this very pithy, but who wrote the epistle? In truth, God knows. So often the case. We don't know to whom it's written. To the believers in Rome? Don't know. Is it to the believers in Jerusalem? Don't know. Is it to one of the churches around in Colossae or in other places? We don't know. Is it principally to Jewish audience? We don't know, although obviously a Jewish understanding would help because of so many of the concepts. But that doesn't mean that Gentiles wouldn't understand it, Gentile background. The only geographic reference, as I mentioned, is in uh, chapter 13, verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Ah, a hint. But it doesn't mean it was written from Italy. Maybe the, the writer knew the church in Italy and was sending greetings. Maybe we don't know. Even the title Hebrews isn't in the original. It was added by a transcriber, a copier, who was making, um, kind of a, copying the papyrus and sending it out, added to the Hebrews. It's not there in the original, but it's become the name that sticks. A fascinating enigma. So Why? And this is where it becomes really important. If it's all about the old and it's dated 2,000 years ago, that temple and Judea, Jewish practices, and that seems quite distant to us. And this enigma of to whom and why and when and by whom, oh, we don't know. It can make it seem a little bit distant. But it's oh so relevant and pertinent. Why is this letter written? Well, do you know, the congregation is exhausted the people that the writer is communicating to are exhausted. There's all sorts of, of things he addresses. They're tired. Have you ever been tired in your Christian life? Have you been tired in life? Or are you all like uh, Duracell bunnies, like on and going? Like... And I don't just mean like, oh, I'm time tired for bed. But weariness. I've become demoralized or struggling or thinking, what's... The point. It seems tough. And that which I set out upon in the Christian journey with enthusiasm, vigor, and hope, and passion, and commitment seems to have waned. Tired. 
Hebrews is for you. It seems to be that the writer wants to speak to believers who are tired in serving in the world. It's tough. Tired of of persecution. Maybe that's not quite our experience. Maybe it is. We're all persecuted. It's just a degree to which we are. Chapter 10, verse 32 to 36. Remember those early days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You do need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Persecution can sap faith. That struggle of standing for Jesus, of making the life choices and the holy decisions that are contrary to everybody else. And you think, it's tough. People mock and ridicule and you think, is there any point? Everyone else seems to be getting on. Just this week, the World uh, Watch List by Open Doors 2023 has been released. 312 million Christians face very higher extreme level of persecution in the world today. Check it out on the Open Doors website. One in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide. I don't know how many are here today, but it's probably something like, if we were representative, maybe one side of the church are under extreme persecution compared to this side. One in five Christians are persecuted in Africa. Two in five Christians persecuted in Asia. It's a theme of Hebrews. Timothy has been imprisoned James, the apostle, has been murdered, martyred in A.D. 62. Nero is raising the pressure, accusing the Christians of starting the fire in Rome in 64. Peter's crucified, probably upside down. Paul's beheaded. Property is being confiscated. In chapter 13, the word for uh, struggle is, is actually a word that means torture, that the Hebrews are suffering. And maybe they're being tempted to think, shall I just step back to the familiar and the known, or even maybe step back into the Judaistic practices? At least Jews had a right and a tolerance exercised by Rome. They had a relative security as long as they didn't rock the boat. Simpler, more straightforward, just fit in. The Hebrew writer writes to the Christians, the believers, who'd become tired of worship. They'd become tired of learning about Jesus and of of following the ways of Jesus. They were tired of being peculiar and different and standing out of being whispered about in society. They were tired of the spiritual struggle. They were tired of keeping their prayer life going. They were probably even perhaps becoming tired of Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. 
Attendance at church is declining. It's a message for the Western church, isn't it? Chapter 10, 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. They're losing confidence. If you found yourself or in that place, if we in the church in the West kind of think it's just a few of us, it seems that the church seems to be compromising itself and watering down its commitment to Jesus in all sorts of ways. Where is the distinctiveness? That we find ourselves with our young people thinking, where have they gone? They've just seemed to have abandoned or, or those who have been part of a church fellowship for a while and, and seem to have just taken it easy. Or it's too tough. Hebrews is for us. So what's the writer's thrust? What's the answer to thy dilemma? Jesus, squarely, center stage, utterly Jesus. The writer, in his pastoral response to a church who is tired, who are wondering why and how and is there any point, are thinking, shall we just choose another way, another road? This whole letter says, consider him, know him, fix your thoughts, fix your eyes. Chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, holy, brothers and sisters, remember holy is important, we've been set apart already, we are holy in Christ. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in our heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. We read it already in chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The pastoral emphasis, the the key to unlocking tiredness, the challenge of living for Jesus in whatever society and culture we found ourselves, ours especially, is not some strategic plan to improve group dynamics or serving better coffee, though that is always appreciated. It's not about conflict management techniques, though again, working through how we may one another and care for each other is, of course, important, but that's not the thrust. It's not about reorganizing mission structures and pastoral care and outreach or setting up a clock thermometer on the side saying we need to raise more funds and employ somebody else. It's not about snappy worship services. Come on, church that I'm writing to. Let's get some smoke machines and bring back the organ or pull it out and get some guitars and drums and let's have some more upbeat songs or more hymns or whatever your particular tone. That's not what he emphasizes nor come up with a strategic, visionary, captivating five-year plan or a revamped vision statement. not saying those are bad. Hebrews says, Jesus. Discover the nature again and meaning of Jesus. Have a better vision of God. 
a better way to know God. The pages and the chapters of Hebrews are fascinating. And maybe a little bit enigmatic at times because he'll talk about Melchizedek. Who? We'll get to that. He talks about practices and principles that we've not practiced for 2,000 years. And we don't really know what goes on in a temple. And it seems a bit bloody and gory and messy a lot of the time. But he's not really focusing on that. He's saying... But Jesus fulfills that, and Jesus is center stage. And in all the troubles and struggles and tiredness, and is it worth it? Consider him. And it will stretch as its deep theology. He will go into some stuff that you'll kind of think, wow, that's amazing. He is the image of the invisible God. Some of the theology, it's deep theology, it's wide incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, second coming, the high priest of how he is fulfilled once and for all, every sacrifice. Fantastic. He says, don't skirt around it, go deeper. And that will inspire you and re-envisage you. Jesus. If you ever think that Christianity is, is kind of going to get floored and knocked out by some intellectual in a university or some kind of pamphlet that is written, I doubt it. 2,000 years of this Jesus being scrutinized, and tested and challenged and worked out systematically, does it? Hold water, it does, it's coherent and makes sense. Obviously, faith is required. Hebrews 11, bang on there. We need faith to please God. But it's not leaky boat that's going to sink. This is watertight and true and trustworthy. Hebrews draws us to Jesus, the nature and meaning of Jesus, that he is a, that the letter demonstrates a better vision of God. If you're tired, you're not close to Jesus. Let me clarify that. We can be tired and be close to Jesus. We can serve really hard and be close to Jesus. But you know what I mean of that commitment to walking the holy life? Of saying, Jesus is Lord. I was passionate about him when you became a Christian. And now, 30 years down the track, mm, yeah, maybe. <coughs> Hebrews speaks to us. Because ultimately, as we'll see towards the end of the letter, the challenge is to surrender everything and follow him, that there are better reasons to live, better reasons to believe, and therefore so to live. I hope you'll enjoy this journey we're on. It's an amazing letter. Commentator said this, and I close with this. As strategies go, this approach to ministry is so out of phase, so counterintuitive, so in violation of notions that congregations are allergic to serious theological thinking, that maybe this is seen as refreshing and maybe even revolutionary. There's not a quick fix. There's not a blue pill that I can give you that make it all better. But come to Jesus. Consider him. Fix your thoughts and your eyes 
upon him. But Hebrews will get to help us to get to know him better. And he is amazing. One of the things that is most lovely about Hebrews is the beautiful presentation of Jesus in his humanity, in his vulnerability, in his care and his compassion and his empathy with us. That he prays for us. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to think, is surely, is this worth it? Consider him. Let's pray.